Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the Bean Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Josh Day. Our mission here at the Bean Museum is to inspire wonder and reverence for our living planet. So with this podcast, we're here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, mlbean.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Welcome to the third episode of the Why Life Science podcast here at the Bean Life Science Museum. Today we have uh, Dr. Sam St. Clair, who is over in the Plant and Wildlife Sciences Department here at BYU. And we have Dr. Tara Boyce Belknap Bishop. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> who is a researcher with the Forest Service uh, based out of the Rocky Mountain Research Station here in Provo. And Tara and I were both grad students under Sam just recently, so this is a nice fun reunion for us here. But we're going to talk a little bit about desert ecology today. We want to highlight some of the research that Tara has been doing recently down in St. George. So before we get started into that, why don't we just have you both introduce yourselves, maybe talk a little bit more about the kinds of research that you do and what your research interests are, and then yeah, and then we can talk about a little bit more about the specific project. But Sam, why don't, why don't you... Yeah, I started uh, my desert research when I first started here at BYU. There was a department trip down to the Lytle uh, Ranch Preserve, and I went down there, and I was just blown away at how many interesting patterns there were down there. And so that's how I got started. My research, as you guys know, uh, focuses on plant-animal interactions. I'm really a plant biologist, but I'm really interested how uh, animals... And, you know, with their interaction with plants, uh, affects the, how plant communities are put together. Pollination, herbivory, which is animals eating plants. And so we do a lot of that research in deserts and in forest systems as well. Awesome. Tara? So I got my start with science. When my grandpa moved from the state of Georgia to St. George and would take me out in the desert. And we just wandered <laughs> and That's awesome. it was wonderful and then I got really interested in the medical sciences at here at BYU and then took ecology and learned that it's actually really cool stuff and so I was a high school science teacher for six years before I came back to do my PhD with Sam so I was Timpanogos High School not to be confused with Timpview right so <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. very important. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I got my start. And, you know, my research has really focused in the deserts. And I like kind of going from small to large scales where I'm doing similar things that Sam just described, but then adding different components such as using satellite imagery and kind of doing a more um, kind of technical approach on looking at uh, plant communities across time and space. Wow. So we were talking um, a couple weeks ago, the four of us, in preparation for this podcast, and Tara had brought up that she was doing some research um, in a neighborhood down in St. George, right? Yes. Yep. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what that project is? Okay. So there's this really cool area in southern St. George. It's very close to the border of Arizona, and it's this hilltop called White Dome and it's very different than the surrounding areas because it has lots of gypsum in its soil so it's very white. 
and, and it's very contrasting to the red rock that's surrounding. It's at the heart of this area that's being very developed with lots of housing and as well as commercial and business. But this area is unique in that it is home to its habitat for a rare and endemic, meaning that it's found nowhere else in the world, uh, species of poppy. So it's called the dwarf bear claw poppy. It's across St. George, but because so many people are living there now, a lot of its habitat is getting destroyed. And so this particular plot uh, is called the White Dome Nature Preserve, and the Nature Conservancy, a, na a nonprofit organization, purchased a bunch of the area. It's a few hundred acres of the area, and are just trying to conserve this habitat for this very rare and special plant that grows only in St. George. Uh, there are people's houses, their backyard fence shares the fence with the conservancy. <laughs> so it is literally in the heart of a neighborhood. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what research are you doing there and why are you doing it in that spot? What's unique about that spot or what's special about that spot? Why right. did you choose that spot? So. The other scientist I work with, Dr. Susan Myers, she's been an expert in rare plant genetics in particular, and so she's had her eye on the bear claw poppy for a long time. This particular area of White Dome has, in the last two or three years, exploded in an exotic grass called Bromus rubens, or red brome. The red brome has invaded the area before, but it hasn't come into the White Dome area. Um, largely, they think it's because the soil is fairly unique. It doesn't really host a wide variety of plants there. And so now all of a sudden we have this pristine rare plant habitat that has been covered in red brome invasion. And there's a lot of problems that come with plant invasions. And so I was hired on to try and help answer the questions of where is it and why, and is there something we can do about it to preserve the rare plant habitat of, for the poppy? Wow. That sounds awesome. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Sort of, right? It's <laughs> awesome research, but not awesome that it's been invaded, It's right? a really unique area. You know, I've I spent a lot of time in other deserts where we've got these big, beautiful Joshua trees and then, you know, other big big plants that are just really showy, but yet now I'm in this area that a lot of people look at and just kind of see not much, right? There's not a lot of plant life there, but in the springtime, you know, these poppies are beautiful. They're just like the classic red California poppy, but they're white. And so they're very beautiful showy plants, but they're very sparse and they only grow in these very specific areas. And so it's kind of uh, out of sight, out of mind mentality a lot of the time with these special species that are there. Yeah. So Sam, could you maybe explain to us a little bit or talk a little bit about why plant invasion is such a big deal, yeah. especially in a desert system, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people in this area, they see the desert as the barren wasteland, right? That it's, it's land that's not valuable, right? That it's just kind of wasted space. But we know better, right? <laughs> it always it's hurts my heart when someone calls the desert ugly. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Why should we care about plant invasion in the desert? Well, I, I think Tara would have recognized that the presence of, of red brome is really problematic because she's done a lot of really good research on red brome. And her, her research has shown that it is, uh, competes with other, other species. So the first concern, I think, would be that, yeah, it's going to come in and compete 
for soil resources, water and nutrients with this really important rare plant and potentially push it out. Uh, the second problem with it is most deserts don't burn because the native shrubs are spread out. Right? There's so little water and nutrients that they have to live apart from each other. And that creates soil spaces that, that fire can't carry through. But this red brum, this introduced species, um, germinates in the fall and can produce so many seeds and germinate under the right conditions and basically fill in. It can become just a carpet of, of fine fuels that the following summer when it dries out, it, it cures and then becomes very flammable. So a concern we would have under this uh, scenario that Tara is uh, describing is that if it fills in and spreads enough, um, it could change the fire cycle and cause big fires and more frequent fires and completely alter the ecology of this pristine spot, right, that, that has this very unique rare species. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, well, and, you, you know, the fact that people share property boundaries with it, then we're not only worried about the ecology that we're going to lose with all those resources we get, we're also talking about people's lives now and, and their homes and their spaces. Like you both brought up this human factor, this human issue that that can cause, but is there a value in saving that poppy just in saving the poppy? I've, you know, some people might say, who cares? Let's get rid of it. <laughs> that is a very good point. And while one individual species loss may not cause a catastrophic effect in an, an ecological system at what point do we stop saying that right so it's this kind of bigger idea of if we continue to lose species and we continue to alter how these systems function then we're going to lose on the resources and the services they provide and so while you know maybe losing the desert poppy if it was the only plant species that we ever lost might not be that big of a deal but this is in conjunction to the other species that we are losing that we don't even know about and so you know these systems have evolved over millennia to be what they are and that poppy has evolved to be able to survive in this very unique system and now we're changing that. And so, you know, we like to think that we would know what would happen if that poppy left, but yet we really don't, right? We can, we can make good guesses and have some idea of what kind of a chain of events might happen from it. But in reality, there's so much that we still don't know about ecology and the nature of how organisms interact that losing that one species may be a lot bigger deal than what we even think it could. We aren't even sure of all the connections that all these organisms right. have with each other. And that's what your research does, right? Figures that out. Yeah, we're trying to help add to that body of knowledge of how these organisms interact and why it matters. Yeah, a, a really good example of this is that native vegetation stitches the, the desert soil in place. The roots and the soil crust. And so when you change fire or introduce new species um, and, and you create these large burns, then you burn the native vegetation, the root structure, and you damage the soil crusts, then that can cause wind erosion that during the spring period can carry dust up into our mountains. And, it, and if it lands on the mountain snowpack 
um, it can darken the surface and cause that snow to melt much quicker. And then later in the summer, that means less water in our reservoirs. Right? So that's, that's a, an example of an ecosystem service that deserts provide to us, that when they function properly, uh, they prevent wind erosion that can cause a loss of uh, mountain snowpack, which is about 70% of our water supply, okay. right? So, and most people don't even recognize that that connection. No, I mean, that's like four or five steps down the line. Yeah, it doesn't happen every year, but there are years where you will get these massive windstorms after the deserts have burned, and that will cause a carry massive amounts of dust, desert dust, up into our mountains and, and melt that snow five to six weeks early in some cases. and then that can cause flooding in the spring period and it can cause uh, water scarcity later in the end of summer. And uh, all you need to do is drive past our reservoirs right now to know that things aren't good, right? We gotta, this is an issue we and face. I like water. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason to care about yeah. the poppy. <laughs> you might not be alone in that, <laughs> right? I think it sometimes surprises people too to realize how fragile sometimes these ecosystems are, how easy it is for us to just do some damage, right? But then once that damage is done, it's so hard to fix it, especially in a desert system where things are operating so slowly because resources are so limited, like mm -hmm. water is so limited that a lot of desert plants, like desert shrubs in particular, grow so slowly. Yeah. So that once we lose one, you can't just replant and get it back. You can't yeah, just grow it back the next year. It's interesting because, you know, we personify things, right? We, we like to put characteristics on these ecosystems from a human perspective. And calling it a fragile ecosystem makes sense because we live on a time scale that's so much shorter than what a desert does. But I dare say that deserts are super, super strong. <laughs> because if you think about if you were to go out and live there, you are not adapted to just live on upon the resources that are offered, right? But these plants are. And so they're amazing. The only reason I really mention that is just so that maybe we can have a sense of respect for what these organisms are doing in their own uh, adapted way. And that, you know, it's, it's good for us to put it through a lens of what human impact is going to do and recognize that we're not the only things here, right? We're not, we're not the only things on this planet. We need to respect what the work has been put in for these organisms to evolve into what they are now. Absolutely. I mean, what are some of the adaptations of these desert plants that people might not know about? Katie, we only have 20 minutes. We have a famous Joshua tree um, that is in a canyon going up to some of our research plots. Josh and Tara know this, this tree very well, and it's in a wash. <laughs> and it got basically in a, a torrential rainstorm, got, got just, it fell over. And we watched it for a four or five year period, and the leaves stayed green. And we thought the roots were still attached. And so at some point, we went over and lifted the base up and realized it didn't have any roots. Whoa. Right? And so it had living green leaves in the Mojave Desert. You can get temperatures of 115. Yep. Terrence, gosh, can tell you that. <laughs> yes. I, That's I can too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so their water conservation is incredible. Right? Yeah. To not take a drink through your roots for a four to five year period, four to five summers, and to maintain the chlorophyll and the, the chloroplasts in those leaves so it's green 
and probably for a couple of years may have been doing a little bit of photosynthesis just with the water inside of the leaf it leaves itself. I think that's a really good example of just the majesty, just the resilience of these systems. Yeah, we can't live on that water, no, right? No, no. So I happen to do a lot of my research during my master's um, on ants. And if we have a few ants out here in our deserts uh, that are known as honeypot ants or honey ants. And they have adapted to store nectar. So like a lot of other insects, they, they eat nectar out of flowers. But in areas like in deserts where maybe the flowering periods don't last very long um, or water so limited that they have found a way to store this nectar but in the bodies of s individual ants so that there are certain ants that will be kind of chosen to be these storage units they just get nectar until their bodies swell up to the size of a grape so their abdomens swell up so that they're huge ants can't move anymore they just sit there as living storage units for nectar <laughs> for those parts of the year where they they aren't able to get nectar job of the hut yeah it's full of yeah. nectar that's crazy yeah that's seriously they're almost the size of a grape these little ants sorry to get off topic but yeah. those are both fascinating stories yeah deserts are cool deserts <laughs> are cool <laughs> <laughs> so tara so what exactly um are you doing like what methods are you using okay so something that uh, is important is that as we do science, you know, sometimes science can be destructive. And so we are trying our hardest to answer the questions of where is the brome, this invasive grass species, and why? Why is it there? Uh, but we don't want to spend the time and potentially the damage of hiking across the entire preserve to collect samples and make counts of these uh, grasses. And so one of the highlights of what I'm doing right now is actually using drones to capture imagery of it. And so I go out there and I'll fly my drone and I capture the whole preserve. And um, my drone has a regular camera on it, just like you would take a picture with your iPhone, nice color photo. But then it also has another special camera that I have attached to the bottom of it that captures infrared light. And so we can actually take these images and I can separate out where the grasses are versus where a shrub is versus where the poppies are just based on the kind of greenness or how green it is and the color of green that it is depending on the time of year. And so that gives us a way to um, see where these bromes are and where the poppies are in relationship to each other without having to go and walk on the soil crests. We're trying to utilize that technology to hopefully help do our part in preserving the habitat as well as answering these important questions. That's so cool that you can do that. You can just take these pictures and look mm -hmm. and gather data from, yeah. these, from these images. It's a lot of pictures. You know, the drones fly and we are able to import information that tells, it's a very hilly area, it goes up and down, up and down. And so we can tell the drone, um, you know, what the elevations are. And so the drone will go up and down with the topography now. And then I'm able to take all of those thousands of images that are taken and, and bring them back into some software. Each image overlaps a lot. And so it can just stitch together this really big, it's called an ortho mosaic. It's a very big image of the whole preserve. And then each pixel in that image stores information, right? So every pixel on an iPhone picture will tell you a color, right? A red, green, blue. 
And so we have all this information stored on these pixels from this drone imagery. And so then we can look at, you know, well, this pixel is part of a poppy and this pixel is a part of open bare soil and see what the differences in that information is and be able to categorize them. And then we can tell a computer to do the rest of it. <laughs> so, so we train the information, right? I'll take a small subset of the imagery and tell the imagery like this is a brome area and this is a poppy and this is a shrub. And, and then I can put it through our computer system and it can tell us the rest of the imagery of and categorize it for us. So it's pretty neat. It's pretty fun and it's really exciting. And I hope that we can expand that to further areas, right, to answer these questions. And, and then we do have other things going on in the area where we're trying to answer the question of why. You know, why are the bromes coming in in just the last few years when they've been there for decades now? And one of the things that I think um, and, and have set up an experiment for is because of the influx of people into the area, right? We're building all of these houses that weren't there years ago. They've all come in within the last four or five years and with people comes burning of fossil fuels. And every time we burn fossil fuels into the air, we put particles into the air and those particles, what goes up must come down, right? And so some of those particles are gonna settle out. And so I'm wondering if there's not some kind of fertilization, right? That our burning of fossil fuels is fertilizing this soil that is typically really, really low in nitrogen, which is a really important nutrient for plant growth. And so if there is nitrogen that's settling from burning of fossil fuels onto this soil, you know, bromes love nitrogen. That's one of the reasons why we think it didn't really grow in white dome before was because it's very low nitrogen soil. Now, if we have all this nitrogen that we might just be like basically priming a garden of brome <laughs> based on us driving our cars around. And so I've s built collectors. They attach to a T-post and they just sit there and everything that falls down on it, it collects in it. We have in a chemical analysis lab and tells us what are the ions, what are the compounds, what are the nutrients that are found in this, basically this dust that's falling out of the atmosphere. So we can, and I've placed them around the preserve to highlight the different areas. You know, along the north side, we have some industrial parks. And on the south side, we have all this housing being built. On the east side, um, it's fairly open, but it just did get sold. And so the state sold it for more housing development. And then on the west side, there's a huge highway that goes by. So we have lots of trucks driving by, right? So I've placed them all around the preserve to see if we can get kind of some spatial aspect of where this might be coming from. And then also just to be able to make sure that we have good comparison, I have, I'm doing all of this same stuff, the drone flights and the, you know, this dust collection at another site that's really far from the housing developments. And how far along are you in this experiment? Oh, pretty new. Okay. <laughs> I just started installing it this summer, actually. Okay. So I started taking some drone flights and I have some preliminary information on where the, the bromes are, but I came into this job and this research a little bit after the prime season of getting some of this infrared imagery and so you know I'm going to go back out this spring and do the flights again and then we have these collectors out there I installed them in September and I collect them every two months so they just sit out there for two months and whatever falls in them falls in them and then I go out and I collect the little tube that it's all falling into and replace the tube with a new tube and so I'm getting ready to do that again here at the end of January. So we'll have kind of some preliminary results of what it's looking like by the end of February. 
my question is kind of more general about science and the process of science. Those two questions you're kind of answering at the same time. Did one influence the other? Yeah, so I think, you know, what kind of happened with this is the Nature Conservancy, you know, they take really good care of this preserve. And over the last year or two, the people that help protect the preserve just noticed that these grasses were coming in big time. And so it got them really worried. And so they wanted to go out and apply herbicide and try and kill all the brome. But there's a lot of nuance to spraying herbicide. We don't know how herbicide would affect the poppies. And so they reached out to Dr. Susan Meyer, who's worked really closely with them, and asked, like, is there something you can do to help us figure out what's going on out here so that we can manage it better. So, you know, it really shows that it came from some citizens who were concerned and asked for our help in really understanding the processes that are happening rather than just trying to go out and spray a bunch of stuff which could have really damaged the poppy habitat. And so with that in mind, then, you know, going based off of what their concerns are, um, that's how we kind of formulated what we were going to do. Yeah, do you get weird looks from people as you're going through their backyards? So many weird looks. <laughs> so it's definitely a lot of weird looks. I also get a lot of dogs barking at me. Um, so, you know, the part that's right by the neighborhoods specifically is actually a research area. They close it off to the public. So there's a big part of the preserve that anyone can go and hike on the trails there, and it's wonderful, and I highly recommend it. But then the whole southern side of the preserve is closed to the public. And so here I am, you know, walking, I have a big backpack on and I'm carrying these big tea posts and um, I commonly wear tie dye out in the desert. So I don't necessarily look like some official forest service <laughs> employee. <laughs> I don't get a cool uniform in my position. And so, you know, they just kind of see this random person out there. They love to have their house up next to you, right? Cause it's a nature preserve. So it's beautiful and it, it's no traffic behind their house and everything. And they all have very low fences. I've had uh, 10 or 15 people that have come out and they're like, oh, hey, yeah, what you doing? Like, what are you, what are you doing over there? And sometimes it's really just they want to know and they're curious and, and we have a great conversation. Other times it's been a little bit like, please don't call the cops on me, <laughs> you know, and I swear I'm supposed to be here. And even if it's uncomfortable, it's provided me a really good opportunity to talk with the community, right? And almost always those conversations end up really in a positive way and they, you know, ask, will you send us the data when you get it because we want to see what's going on. And so I'm really excited to make a little printout for them and, and share it with them, even if they are grumpy that I pounded a T-post in their backyard, kind of, right? <laughs> we also have problems with the drones sometimes. You know, you see a drone buzzing around your backyard and, and they get really nervous about that. And so I try and be very honest with them and that I'm not interested in what's going on in your backyard, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I try to be very careful about flying the drone. You know, we're licensed drone pilots and we follow the, the, the laws and the rules, um, but sometimes people don't know what those are. And so they see a drone flying close to their house and 
they get real nervous. And so I think that just highlights the importance of increasing communication, such as this podcast, right? <laughs> you know, I try to make promises that I always crop out the houses, right? Because I don't care about the houses for my analysis. And so why would I keep them in there? So I tell them I'll crop them out. So that way there's no hints of, you know, who's living where and whatnot. And they usually actually get very happy about that. <laughs> as soon as I say I'll cut their house out, they're like, oh, okay. I'm just out there to answer some really cool science questions that can really affect their daily lives in the long run. So, I just have to note that Tara's uh, mask is tie-dye. I know our, no. our, <laughs> our listeners can't see that, but it, it sure is. I didn't realize you were such a fan. <laughs> oh, yes. Color is a wonderful thing, so <laughs> I will take it <laughs> anywhere I can get it. I think kind of to wrap up a little bit of this discussion here, for all of those people listening uh, wherever they're at, how do we protect our deserts or how do we recreate in them responsibly? Like how do we take care of our desert systems? So a podcast, education, right? Learning about why these systems are important. Scientific literacy is really, really uh, uh, an important beginning point, I think. Um, if we can be really careful about damaging soil crusts. They're, they're really important in these arid systems. And so just where do we ride our mountain bikes? I'm a mountain biker. I am very careful about where I ride my bike. Uh, ATVs, we damage the structure of those soil crusts that can propagate invasion and cause problems that way. Um, and I think not initiating fires, right? <laughs> Being careful where you shoot your guns, uh, fireworks, uh, we've introduced the invasive species into the system, several of them actually, they're there. And under the right uh, weather conditions, they're gonna explode and become very flammable. On top of that, we then go in and uh, are, are not careful, we can start acid fires that, that really tip the system in a direction we don't want them going. Um, I think Tara's research is super fascinating. As her former advisor, I'm super proud of her. <laughs> Josh, Thank I'm you. so proud of both of you. <laughs> uh, her example is so fascinating. We talked about how these deserts are resilient, right? These, these species are evolved for these environments that are extreme. Yeah. Um, but human activities, things that these organisms haven't experienced, we call these novel regimes, uh, the introduction of a new species from a different continent, red brome. That didn't tip the system where she's doing her research, but she thinks and then people move in and start you know, driving their cars around and now we get more nitrogen fertilizer in the air and it starts to sediment onto the plots and then that tips the system towards an invasion. And then all it takes is someone going out there, if we get enough red brome establishing, creating a flashpoint and starts a fire, that's gonna really tip the system. So I think this is a really just interesting case study, how the systems are resilient, but just a couple of things, when we tip them through our choices as humans, we can really cause the system to, to tip in a direction we don't want it to go. Yeah, absolutely, right? These things that are in these systems are resilient to a lot of things, right? They've shown over hundreds of thousands and millions of years that they're resilient to things like drought. They can tolerate three months of 110 right. plus <laughs> degree temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. We can't go out there a day and survive <laughs> that. Right? Right. It's, it's amazing. When you get Absolutely. out in deserts and see the adaptations of not just the plants, but the animals and insects, you, you just, you're in awe. It is incredible. 
but just not being conscious of what we're doing as human beings and introducing new things into the system that the, that the organisms are not, haven't been exposed to in their evolutionary history can just cause a tipping point that can completely change it. And where that tipping point is is different anywhere you go, right? So something that's interesting about this White Dome area is it used to be 100% riding your bikes, riding your ATVs. There's still old roads all over every hilltop out there. But it's had enough time without other disturbance that there is some recovery happening. And it's really exciting to see. However, we now have another problem coming in with possibly a nitrogen fertilization. So now we've had this disturbance that it's slowly recovering from, but then we're going to add on to it, right? And so maybe that's the tipping point and, and of the point of no return, if you will. You know, I think another big thing what we can do is honestly kind of surrounds around respect, right? Respecting nature, respecting boundaries, respecting trails, and knowing that those are there for a reason, right? So the idea of leave no trace is something people could incorporate into their recreation and learning all you can about it kind of fosters that respect and that inspiration to protect it. So what I would say is, in biology we say structure gives rise to function. And so anything you change in, in terms of the structure of the plants or the soil crusts or the behavior of the animals is going to affect how those deserts function. And um, so, yeah, leave no trace is just kind of a really good rule of thumb. Don't go out and change any structure of the desert if you can help it. Every part of that structure has a role to play in terms of that it, it functioning properly. And I can, I can just tell you that uh, we want the deserts to function properly. It will affect our lifestyles, right? If we want to take this from a human-centric perspective, how does it affect us? If it doesn't affect us, then we don't care. That's one attitude. Another is uh, more of an ecocentric perspective. Like every creature has the right to thrive and prosper, right? And, and I'll just draw on LDS scripture here and Doctrine and Covenants. It says that God created the earth for all his creatures. And he didn't specify his children. He said, all my creatures, any organism, any plant, any animal, any insect, um, any bacteria, any fungus, yeah, leave no trace so that any creature has, has the possibility of thriving on this planet. Let's just give you one example. We're doing a study that shows that cow pies facilitate the invasion of red brome. We find it growing twice as tall and just massive seed heads. So we think that cattle, cow pies in the desert, are causing the spread of red brome. And something as simple as a footprint could have the same effect in terms of collecting seeds, creating a little bit of a dish effect that would accumulate water, better water relations that could cause the facilitation and the spread of brome. And enjoy the desert. Deserts are beautiful. Yeah. They're amazing. One of my happy places, there's about five of them in my life, and one of them is the Mojave Desert down near where Tara's doing her research. I just love that place. So, Our human-centric view of deserts being a wasteland is really a problem. My husband and I have these conversations where he doesn't quite feel the sense of beauty of a desert like I do. However, we do talk about these things as far as like what the crusts are doing and what the animals are doing because, you know, I like to chew his ear off about my research. 
And so he has a respect for him, even if it's not like his passion. You know, something I also think is really important as far as like the education is just having conversations, right? If we're out recreating, not everyone is going to be out four-wheeling and riding mountain bikes. Maybe it's just taking a walk or photography. It might do us well to speak to each other about what we're seeing. When I take my kids hiking, I always ask them questions about what they're seeing and we end up having really good conversations and probably one of the most proud mama moments that I've had was we were hiking in Canyonlands and some people went off the trail and the Canyonland soil crusts are even more prone to damage from human contact and one of my kids was like don't bust the crusts and <laughs> just kept walking and I just thought that's awesome right whether or not they become soil scientists it's a matter of just learning that structure and function and having open conversations about it. For me in my life, the importance of getting out in nature has helped me to appreciate it more. And so there is this balance between getting out and experiencing nature and recreating in it, but then also learning about it. I've been with people who are hiking or they're mountain biking or something and they're not even looking. They're just enjoying the downhill. I think that you can do both of those things at once, appreciate and learn and protect. Absolutely. and. You know, we're lucky to live in a state here in Utah um, that has such a wide variety of opportunities, right? Tourism is the number one and number two most productive as far as our economy goes. Um, And it centers around the fact that we have five national parks here in our state, right? And a lot of people come to visit those. But they also happen to all be in desert systems. We might claim that deserts are wastelands, but yet we also protect them as some of the most beautiful areas in the country. Acknowledging that the structure and function of the desert of Zion National Park is very similar, if not the same, as the structure and function of the desert that is 50 miles south. That might not be a national park, but they're still providing these services for us. I think that's probably a really great way to wrap this whole thing up. Sam, Tara, thank you guys so much for being on this podcast, for sharing your thoughts and Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you. Always happy to talk about deserts. So remember, everybody, leave no trace. Be conscious of what you're doing and what effects you might be having on the ecosystems that you're in. All right. Thanks for coming. Deserts are cool. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, guys.